Good morning. I'm here in the flesh. Hi. Oh, I'm not just sitting in the pew watching myself. That was super weird. Hey, uh, that passage Pastor Chris just read, anyone not understand it? Let's be real. Let's be real. Okay, some liars in church already. All right. It's weird, and it's harsh, and it's difficult. And before we dive into this passage, I kind of want to point out, like, do any of you guys have a relative or a friend that you know that when they come into a social gathering or a room, the air gets sucked out of that room? And you kind of have a feeling or an inkling that something's going to be said that is embarrassing? And by embarrassing, I don't mean someone's going to incriminate themselves or even talk too much about themselves. What I mean is, like, you have to grit your teeth because you're preparing for someone else to misunderstand them or react to them or maybe even get mad at them. That's what this passage is like to me. And as we're going to talk about Ananias and Sapphira, they straight up lie to God, and the apostles call it out, and they die. All right, let's pray. No, like, that's what happens. And if you come here visiting, (laughs) welcome. (laughs) Great week. (laughs) We're glad you're here, and we understand if you don't come back. But this passage today is also the reason that I got into the preaching ministry, the teaching ministry, and became a lead pastor, lead pastor because I had worked at churches where when we would be going through books like the book of Acts, we would skip passages like this. And I don't want to do that. I want us to hit it head on because I think we do a disservice to you as the congregants, to you as the participants, if we skip and and play hopscotch with what we read and what we don't read, because then we have an incomplete theology and explanation of who God is. So no matter how you feel about the passage that we just read, maybe you understood it, maybe you cringe a little when we read it, I don't want you to just move on. I want you to engage with this passage because there's more about God in this passage than most of us realize. Now, we came here to worship today, and my hope is that a passage like this maybe would scare you towards the Lord, and I said scare, and maybe for some of us we'll reject God, but the reality is I'd much rather have you reject the real God of the Bible than accept a placebo one because you end up in the same place without the opportunity to really know who He is. So let's tackle this passage, almost like that car accident you see on the side of the road where we slow down and we can't take our eyes off of what just happened. So here we go, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. They also sold a piece of property. Now this may be a new chapter, chapter 5, and this may feel like a new thought, but it's a continuation of where we left off last week. So I'm going to go back just a little bit to where we concluded last week. In Acts chapter 4, 33 through 37, here's what it says. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the cells, and put it at the apostles' feet and distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. 
So as we studied last week, we saw people who believed and knew that Jesus was alive and their priorities were shuffled. They were transformed to see all of their possessions and finances as things they did not grasp onto as their own, but looked out for the needs of others within the gospel community, including Barnabas, who had owned a field and now we saw that this, he had this great opportunity to sell it so he could contribute to the needs of others. This was taking place because this community was changed because of the gospel, because of the resurrection of Jesus made it so people all of a sudden didn't claim everything as their own, and having things was not their goal anymore, but glory to God became their main priority. So that's where we see Dr. Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, taking us from and now to this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who had also sold property. Verse 2, With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Luke points out that this couple together had decided that they would keep some of the proceeds of the sale of the land for themselves. So what? You may ask. Seems like God or his people are kind of being greedy, right? Prosperity preachers be like, we want it all, right? Like that's, that's, that is kind of how it seems. And then Peter said, verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Well, that escalated quickly. Could it be Satan? And Peter is like, hey, you're keeping money for yourselves. You must be the devil. Okay, Now, maybe Peter is still a little defensive from Jesus calling him Satan and telling him to get behind him. Maybe, probably not, but look at how Peter points out the true sin, which FYI was not the keeping back of some money, all right? Check it. Verse 3, I'm going to read it again. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Then he says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. So we have three real sin issues here, and they all compound upon one another, okay? And I'm going to give them to you at the beginning so you can write them down, and then we're going to unpack them. So here it is. Number one, holding back from God. Number two, lying. And number three, the one we tend to miss, pretending to be redeemed. All right? So if you're not convicted from that list, just wait. They held back from God, which honestly, (laughs) this is something we all do. Like, I, I don't even know who gives, and I know we all do this. And you know what's interesting? I'm not even talking about money, but we hold back in our devotion and our worship, and our faith. We believe in God, but we all feel this need to cover all of our bases and make sure that we in our own strength don't become too reliant upon God. Because being too reliant might seem a little fanatical, right? But look, here's what's happening. Let me, let me explain it. There is a man and his wife earnestly wanting to be a part of what's going on. They wanted to have a piece of the action, if you will. They sold some property, just as Barnabas had done, but held back a piece of it and brought only a part. 
They laid it at the apostles' feet. Is there anything wrong with that? Nope, not a thing. There is nothing wrong with that at all. When Ananias came to Peter and said to him, in effect, Ananias, while this land was yours, it was your own. It was your prerogative to do with it what you wanted. You didn't have to sell it. We are not communists. You have the right to do with your property as you see fit. And even after you sold it, you had the right, every right to say what it would be used for. That was okay. There was nothing wrong with that. So what was wrong? Well, Peter, dominated by the Holy Spirit, said to Ananias, you have lied. It wasn't wrong for you to keep the property back, but to act as though you had given it all when you had only given a part. That's what's wrong. You lied. You pretended. You're a sham. You're a phony. You pretend to be something that you're really not. When those words hit the ears of Ananias, he dropped dead at Peter's feet. This is a crazy story. But don't we hold back too? And when we hold back, our devotion, or our worship, our faith, our willingness to really trust God, don't some of us lie about it? Maybe, maybe not. The reality is that we don't think we lie. And if you haven't been pushed on yet, here we go. I love you, but this is the truth. We might not think we lie, but boy, do we exaggerate. And real quick, exaggeration is lying. Okay, you can leave if you need to. (laughs) Telling not the truth is still a lie. And exaggeration, while seemingly harmless to most people, is a heart issue of pride and lack of trusting our identity fully to Jesus. I've never met someone who exaggerated who wasn't in need of people's praise. They fed off of it. They needed it. They saw themselves as how others viewed and spoke of them. Exhibit A, (laughs) social media. Like, I'm meddling with all of you right now, probably, except for Mike. He doesn't know what social media is. Just kidding. (laughs) Do you see what I'm getting at when it comes to social media? We tend to feed off of the amount of likes and follows and views that we get regarding something we have done or something some cat has done. Meow. We choose to justify ourselves by the masses perspective of us rather than a holy and sovereign God's view of us. And so we hold back our worship for the Lord because we're either too busy worshiping other people's opinions or a celebrity, or if we're real, ourselves. But then, because of this need for instant affirmation of a like, follow, or view, we exaggerate or we lie about who we are because we want people to like us or we want people to be jealous of us under false pretenses. And so we go from holding back to lying to pretending. And this is where Ananias and Sapphira really missed the boat and became an example. Check it. They became an example of spiritual death for us all. Now, that rant sounds like I don't like social media. And based on the fact that I don't have any, probably would feel a little disgenuine if I said, yeah, no, 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 I, I, I like it. Eh, I don't. I used to have it. I, I, got, I got off of it. And this it has nothing to do with if you should be on it or not. I don't think anything's wrong with having it unless you don't keep it real. Unless you attempt to be someone you're not 
unless you're trying to catfish everything. Some of you are like, what? Catfish. Unless you are a great pretender, then I think it's a tool for sin rather than for information and enjoyment. So you can keep your snapbook, tic-tac, chat, blah, blah, whatever the kids are playing with these days. I'm here to point you to the gospel. That's what we do here. And getting off social media or having social media do not equal gospel understanding. This land was Ananias's to have. And the Holy Spirit had been working in the unity of the church. We read this in verses 33 and 34 of chapter 4. And then we'll see more of this work in verses 14 and 16 of chapter 5. But the problem was that this couple, while seeming to be led by the Holy Spirit, like everyone else, was falsifying their effort and who they were. Remember verse 32 of Acts 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. This was a marker then because of what the Spirit was doing. This is what the Spirit was producing, and Ananias and Sapphira, while seeing this, probably felt like they needed to look this part as well. So what was the sin? Well, at first it was holding back from God. Then it was lying, which ultimately was confirmation of a pretending to be something or someone that they weren't. Now, as we'll study in, the, in a moment, the consequences are pretty severe. And as we have touched on many times in the book of Acts, there is this tension between descriptive and prescriptive, okay? Descriptive and prescriptive. And here we have something that, like last week, the earthquake after the prayer as we studied was descriptive. This is what actually happened, but shouldn't be prescribed every time we lie. And some of you are like, oh, thank God. This shouldn't be prescribed every time we hold back money or our time or our devotion from God. We all tend to hold back our finances from God. But confession, it took me years, actually it took me a decade in the Christian faith to feel the conviction with money and give not only regularly but generously rather than out of what I had left or what I could afford at that time. So that's a quick disclaimer. If you're struggling with giving, congrats, you're human. High five. And Peter points out that Ananias didn't have to sell the property, but he implies that Ananias is attempting to justify himself by giving of these proceeds. One of the reasons we don't talk a lot about money, unless you've been here the past two weeks, is because I believe in a God that matures people and provides. That's what I believe in. And what I have seen in this community is people come and go. Some stay a while. Some stay a moment. But those that he draws here for a while and he grows in their faithfulness and he grows them in their understanding of grace, they grow in their love and obedience to Jesus. And a wonderful litmus test that you can do for yourself. None of us need to know about this. You can go home and do this on your own. Is if you want to know if God has been maturing you, look at your giving. How is it trending? Ooh, y'all are like, when's this service over? If you're giving to justify yourself, you're your own God. So don't give to justify yourself. Give out of devotion to the Lord. And if you're giving because you want to justify yourself, don't give because it gets you nowhere. 
The problem is that sometimes we have no love for God or his people, and we give to justify, and we attempt to become shareholders in the kingdom. And being a shareholder in the kingdom, while seeming like a great investment, is not how it works. You cannot buy stock in something that isn't publicly traded. I think. I don't know. I don't buy stock. Anyway, that just sounded right. Daniel's going to correct me after. When you invest in the kingdom, you give towards the work of ministry with the expectations that those who receive the money you give are going to use it for kingdom work. Now, let's be real. This gets abused over and over and over again. It's expensive to put fuel in my jet. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, it is, and I don't have a jet, just so everyone knows. And even before Jesus walked the earth, it begins with the heart of the individual giving, and those who claim to use the money for the advancement of the gospel, these people will be held accountable by the Lord for how they use it. Now, there's a parable known as the parable of the talents, or in NIV, it's the gold bags, and God entrusts these people with the truth of the gospel, and we're responsible to steward it well based on the opportunity that the Lord gives us. If we hide it, let me help you with the parable. If we hide it, if we do nothing with it, we are counterfeit in our faith. We are pretending. And Jesus' words in that parable are pretty harsh towards the great pretenders. And that's what we have here with Ananias and Sapphira. We have two pretenders who claim to be indwelled with the Spirit, but really are just trying to look a certain way to justify themselves before men. Does anyone know anyone like this? Tell me their names. No, I'm just kidding. Don't. Please don't. Because we could be wrong. The reality is that Peter wasn't wrong because he saw what they were doing and empowered by the Holy Spirit knew what was about to happen to them. It seems harsh. This story seems harsh. It's difficult to read. Sometimes when we're reading through the book of Acts, we get to this and we kind of like cringe and then we just move on and we're like, oh, the rest is so happy. Not really. People are getting killed. There's a lot of harsh stuff that happens. But it's an illustration of what happens to us spiritually when we sin. We're dead. And the only thing that can fix that is not us making up for the bad that we've done by doing good, but the antidote is of Jesus Christ being our salvation in faith, receiving his grace. So I'd just like to say this, and then I'll move on, I promise, that if you're pretending then know that it gets you nothing eternally. If you're pretending, stop it. You may convince some other people that you're holy and righteous, but they are not the judge of your souls. So if you're, rep if you're pretending, repent, change direction, become intimate with God, turn and stop your religious activity and get right with Jesus. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Wow. So we have a few problems here. We have someone holding back from God again. This isn't prescriptive in the literal physical sense, even though this happened to him, but it is prescriptive spiritually, and here's how we decode this. Like the lame man, you guys remember this from Acts chapter 3, like the lame man that was healed in chapter 3, this actually happened, but it was still a picture of something else. The lame man was us spiritually. We're unable to walk. 
We're unable to do anything good in our own strength. We need to be carried to the temple to beg. We cannot justify ourselves or save ourselves. And here we have Ananias and Sapphira, which have had a pretty swift judgment against them. But this is us too. This is our sin put on display. And we cannot just do better or be better or try harder. We need an intervention of the supernatural kind in order for the sin not to kill us and eternally separate us from God. Sin leads to death. And for Ananias and Sapphira, it was quick and without opportunity to repent. And you and I, we have the opportunity to repent. But either we think we'll do it later, or we really don't think we've done anything that bad. So the final line in that verse struck me. Here's what it says. It says, and great fear seized all that heard what had happened. Did you know that people tend to have a visceral reaction to this idea of fear of the Lord? We water it down, and we say that it just means we respect him, but fear of the Lord is reverence, which is more than just respect. There's a vol volatility to it. God would not show his face to Moses because Moses would disintegrate. The glory of God radiates like the sun. His glory can sunburn us. It can burn us away. His presence and power and glory are more than a human can handle, but fear of the Lord for a believer is part of understanding God's majesty. He is like none other. He is held in esteem that no one else ought to have. But this fear, probably like most who heard about or have read the story of Ananias and Sapphira since, have misunderstood what fear of the Lord means. As if every time you lie or hold back from God, God will strike you dead right then and there. That isn't what happened. And I'd contend this isn't specifically why they died in the first place. So let's continue the story. Verse 6. Then some men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Does anyone feel like Peter's baiting her? But the reality is that this was evidence of an unrepentant heart. Because she too was not only in on the lie, but pretending to be redeemed when she wasn't. There's a book I read years ago. I even had a shirt that had the name of the book. It's called, the book's called Not a Fan. And I would always wear the shirt and people would be like, not a fan of what? And I was like, fake Christians. That would always start a fun conversation. Here's what Kyle Eidelman, the author of the book says. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits but not so close that it requires anything from them. I'll just let that sit there for a second. Ananias and Sapphira were at best fans. They were either fans of Jesus, which I actually doubt, or fans of the community that was being changed around them. And they wanted in on it. They wanted to look like they belonged now, God doesn't call us to be fans. God calls us to be followers of Jesus. That's the crux of the sermon. This is where the axis point changes. He does not call us to be fans. He calls us to be followers of Jesus, and they didn't want any part of that. Verse 9, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, 
The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. Wow. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. I don't want Peter doing funerals for people. Straight up. Wow. That is savage. And misunderstanding this story becomes a marker for someone who cannot grasp onto the gospel as their identity. Here's what I mean. The way the natural man, the, the non-supernatural, the way the natural man will look at the world is that God is punitive. You do bad and then bad happens. You get what you deserve. But the gospel isn't like that. The gospel isn't punitive. God is not punitive. God is grace personified. It's not just that we do bad. If you're visiting, I love you, but here's the truth. It's not just that you do bad. It's that we're all inherently not holy. But God is holy. And so in His holiness and mercy, He decides instead of giving us what we deserve, which is death because of our sin and eternal separation from God, He gives us grace. We are offered what we do not deserve in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you've been at this church for a while, we talk a lot about grace, don't we? And not cheap grace, where we just continue to assume grace so we can continue to sin so grace may increase intentionally. That's cheap grace. No. But the grace that is personified in Jesus and his perfect life lived, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his victorious and physical resurrection from the dead, which you and I, when we receive this, we get to live vicariously through this. Before God, we live as if Jesus lived for us, and he had a perfect record. He never sinned. Jesus died, and so we died to our old self, and then Jesus resurrected, and so we are resurrected into a new life, and we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. We live vicariously in the victory of our Savior. So yes, grace, here's the definition we talk about all the time, grace is getting what we don't deserve, okay? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Say it back to me. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Okay, you got that definition? Fantastic. Let me give you an acronym. I love acronyms, C-O-V. We have an acronym. And I stole this. This is not original, but it's pretty good. Here is grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. Write that down if you're taking notes. Remember that. Meditate on that. God is not punitive. We don't get what we deserve. Jesus didn't get what he deserved. He got what we deserved, and we get what he deserves. And this is crazy that we're right before God, not because we did anything right, but because of Jesus. Hallelujah. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The church was seized by fear. As I said, fear of the Lord is misunderstood but it's a marker of a devoted follower of Jesus. Why? Because when we fear the Lord, we don't think we can control him or manipulate him. His sovereignty becomes a feature rather than a liability because him being in control means that if any and everything end up in ways that we don't want or prefer, that God being in control also means he knows what needs to happen to bring himself glory and what needs to happen to sanctify and grow us into his likeness. 
Now, I have a baby. Her name's Finley, and, and she's walking. I didn't pull her out of the nursery to show her all to you, but she's walking now, and it's, it, it's a walk-ish waddle, and it's adorable, and I love playing with my 11-month-old, and she is so pretty, and she is so fun, and I adore her. And when I've got her, I'm holding her, and what I do is, when we're sitting on the couch and she's getting a little whiny, I throw her in the air. Now, I catch her, in case anyone was wondering. <laughs> I throw her in the air, and I catch her. And what does she do? She laughs. She laughs uncontrollably. But let's be real. It's a bit of a nervous laugh. <laughs> That's what she does. She's a little unsettled. Now, I'm all she knows about people who throw her in the air, and she trusts me. She's along for the ride, but there's still a chance that I will drop her. And when we are living by faith in our Lord with a healthy sense of fear of our God who can barbecue us with his presence, I think we may have a nervousness in our laughter. But a Christian is willing to trust anyway. I want to be along for the ride. I might nervous laugh, but it beats refusing to obey or be led. Verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. All the believers. It sounds like all the believers. But based on the context and how other translations put it, I believe they meant the apostles and not any and every believer in this context. In ESV, Extra Spiritual Version, it says it this way, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Why is that important? Because the signs of the apostle were important. Paul, when questioned by the church in Corinth about his qualifications to be an apostle, to be someone who spoke from God's uh, uh, behalf, said it this way in 2 Corinthians 12, 11 through 12, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, his apostleship was confirmed by the Lord doing the miraculous through him. And the apostles were meeting together at Solomon's Colonnade, or Portico, according to ESV, and it was this large porch in the court of Gentiles on the eastern side of the temple. Verse 13, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So, we have fear and awe which came over these people, and that fear, that reverence, that awe in the power of God actually drew people to himself, probably with nervous laughter. And it also kept some people from engaging. This past week, if you were here last week, uh, you know what I'm talking about. I heard a more than normal amount about the sermon that I preached last week, about how I was preaching some hard truth. I heard that a lot. Maybe not with that accent, but hard truth. And if you've been here a while, that probably isn't that surprising to you. Like, I've never been told I don't talk enough, or I don't drive fast enough, or I don't preach hard enough. You know what I'm saying? Like, this has never been told to me. 
And I think the reality is that I, as a teacher of God's Word, often have focused more on the audience, more on, <laughs> more on the audience than I should have. I'm not saying that using references and stories that are interesting to the people we have attending here is a bad idea. It's a good idea. But there are times I have pulled my punches in the text because I have cared more about butts and seats rather than the sanctifying truth of His Word. I've been communicating in some fashion the Word of God for two decades now. And what I have come to understand is this. The results are always up to Jesus. Always. Even when I have tried to share my faith with someone and I stumbled over words and I answered questions wrong and I did everything ways I would never do them now, God still did something with it. Well, I'm not ready. Good. That's the perfect time for God to use you. So if God wants to grow this place numerically, either in a blessing or his wrath, which it could be, I'm going to trust that he knows exactly what the people who are faithful and called here need to grow more into his likeness. So we do the things that we do with the resources that God has provided us. We're not trying to do things that a church our size can't do. And when we attempt to make things about people, we start to inadvertently take glory away from God and give it to people. Now, this is not about glory for the Neathlings. But I was talking with the Neathlings this week. Melanie and I were discussing the songs for this Sunday, which you're going to hear three more of them soon. And I told them what a blessing that they had been to my family in particular, and so many others in this past week as we had pulled pork Sunday. You guys remember this last week? That was legit, right? That... Dan was making that on Saturday and making sure that we could eat together. And the food was great, but the time together was great too. And I heard a lot of people talking about you guys, so that's awkward. But the cool thing about it was, even as they expressed their gratefulness about you guys, they didn't communicate the Neathlings are great. They communicated that God was great to use them. And God was doing a very cool thing in them, and he was using their heart for Jesus to encourage other people to engage with one another. So I say all that to say this. I'm not going to hold back, which probably means I'm going to get more emails than I normally do because I'm going to tell you what this text says. In a church, sometimes it offends people when we open the Bible and read it. But here's the thing, the Bible, and I've said this hundreds of times, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It contradicts us, and we don't like it. So if you start to get uncomfortable and you don't like what's being taught from the Bible, if you don't like what I'm saying, just remember my email is mike at covalley.com and I'm standing by waiting for your complaints. I would love them. Verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Nevertheless, therefore, there are these beautiful words that connect things that I think we miss often. Nevertheless, even though, but, even though there was fear, God drew people to himself. Even though some will not understand or agree, there will always be God drawing people to himself. Some hear conviction and pout and complain and run Some will be convicted and repent and turn to the true Jesus of the Bible, and their eternity and life on earth will never be the same. Malik's not here, so I'm going to talk about him. Malik, 
The first like six or seven times I talked with that dude, he wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He thought Christianity was ridiculous. He would ask questions, I'd give him answers, and then he'd fold his arm and go, meh, no. And now he's our worship lead. And God has done such a cool work in that young man's life. So don't pout. Repent. Some, sometimes we don't like that other people in our relation, like that we have relationship with get the gospel, especially when God doesn't fit into the box that maybe we've created for him and we don't get it. But Jesus, quoting the Old Testament prophet Micah in Matthew 10, says it this way, for I have come to, hear this, turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. This one doesn't seem hard. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now, before we think Christianity is about hate and war, Jesus quoting Micah has more to do with the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving grace of the gospel, the message personified and exercised in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection as our sole means of salvation through belief in it, this gospel, it divides relationships even within households. And this isn't because Christians think they are right and everyone else is wrong. This is because to believe in the gospel means that everything changes as far as priorities are concerned. And God becomes front and center rather than our own worth and expectations of getting ahead. We want God to get glory while we participate in making him utmost. And not everyone likes that. Because the gospel isn't just a fad or a hobby. The gospel is eternal life change. Verse 15, we're almost done. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Okay, it's really easy to skip what's being said here and jump right to people brought their sick so that Peter's shadow would heal them. But really what this is, is a result of God and his supernatural work, drawing people to himself and the apostles, continuing the work. Jesus had the finished work on the cross and through the resurrection, but the unfinished work of the apostles was to make known that salvation was found in no other name but Jesus. Regarding healing, which I think a lot of people emphasize in this passage, I believe that these people who were willing to bring their sick family members and friends had the faith that God could heal even through the shadow of an apostle. The struggle here is that the apostles, capital A, saw Jesus alive after he died and was resurrected. So next time someone tells you they're an apostle, ask them what shoes Jesus wears, all right? They have gone on in the first century via a martyr's death to be with God in eternity. And so we have to read this passage as descriptive rather than prescriptive because we assume that God should heal this way today. Mike's shadow. Ah, I feel so much better. God can heal, yes, but he's not an apostle. A little slow on that one. God can heal, yes, but it is not predicated on how much we believe he can heal. It is predicated on, how go- on his good and pleasing will. That's when he heals, when he chooses to. Verse 16. 
crowd gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. All in Greek is all. There you go. All is a very inclusive word. All that came trusting that God could heal those possessed or sick were healed, which is amazing, but it was not for man's glory. It might have confirmed who the apostles were and how important they were to furthering the message of the gospel and establishing the church, which you are now a part of, but they know that while being used by God for God's glory, they were just a tool, not the point. So as we serve church… As we care for others, as we attempt to show kindness and grace to those around us, may we be reminded that we are not the point, but we have the same commission and opportunity to bring glory to God by being gospel proclaimers and servants to the God Most High, because salvation is found in no other name but Jesus. And maybe embrace the fact that fear of the Lord isn't a bad thing. It's a worshipful thing. And without having reverence for God, you'll never actually understand who He is and what He does. He is the Alpha and Omega. He put the stars in the sky, and we cannot fake Him out or pretend to be His follower and go anywhere eternally. An authentic Christian is dependent and a Lord-fearing person, not a self-reliant fan of the Lord. So I'm going to conclude with this, which means there's only 25 more minutes of a sermon. Just kidding. I'm a pretty big fan of things. Yeah, I know. Did you guys know this? Like, like I became a Niner fan, and I have so many jerseys in my closet. And I thought about bringing my Niner jerseys and my Warrior jerseys and my Red Sox jerseys, and now I have Giants jerseys because I liked them last year, and I hope they re-sign Chris Bryant. Come on. Anyway, and so but I have all of these jerseys, and I, I, man, I don't just like something. Like, I get into it, okay? Not just sports. Technology. Automobile brands. Coffee establishments. Superheroes. The Batman was such a good film. Just saying. Just saying. The list can get pretty extreme, and when I'm into something, I go all in. Like, I... I started running like the week before COVID was found in the United States. I ran 46 miles last week. I ran two marathons in the past two years. I've run, I'm running three half marathons this week. I'm running four half marathons the week after. I began running, and I don't just kind of do it. I get into it until I'm injured. I've always been like this. I have always worn my favorite team's jerseys while I watch them play. You know what I'm saying? Now, when I was a kid, I liked Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, okay, because that's my generation. But my favorite thing, all right, if you had asked me what I was going to be when I grew up, hands down, always, every time I was asked, was I am going to be a ninja. So much so that my mom feeding my fandom to everything ninja, bought me an authentic ninja uniform. Don't call it a costume. Uniform. And let me take you back to 1985. It was four and a half. And this wonderful and glorious movie that I should not have been allowed to see in the theaters came out. Written or uh, played 
an actor played the wonderful private Joe T. Armstrong, wonderful thespian that you all, I'm sure, know, Michael Dudikoff, played in The American Ninja. Anyone? All right, come on, Chris. And I went to this movie dressed head to toe in, I was wearing a mask for all y'all, head to toe, ninja. Now, here's the thing. I had no shame. I didn't care. I was in. I, was in. I believed I was a ninja. I only had a yellow belt in karate at the time, but I believed I was a ninja. I had never trained. I was still picking my nose. But I had a ninja costume, uniform, whatever. So I thought I was a ninja. So why do I tell you this embarrassing story? Oh, I have a picture. Just kidding. No, I don't. <laughs> because I was pretending. No matter how much I wanted to be a ninja, it would require a lot more than just me being a big fan and wearing a costume. God doesn't want obsessive fans. God wants faithful, consistent followers of Jesus who don't just look the part but love God through obedience to his word. So church, if you see some of yourself at all in Ananias and Sapphira, if you're convicted because maybe you've been playing church or wearing a costume rather than being trained in righteousness, repent, change direction, trust the God of the Word, and follow Jesus. And I promise you, your life and eternity will never be the same. Worship team, would you come on up? And for some of you guys, you don't know how to respond. Well, we're going we're gonna to praise Jesus in music. We're going to have an opportunity to do communion. We're going to have an offering. We're going to have all of these things. And there are cards in front of you that I would encourage you that if you were convicted, if there's something you want to talk about, I want you to fill out that card and drop it in the box as you leave later today. And someone from the staff, probably a pastor, will get in contact with you and walk you through this. But if you want to trust Jesus, man, it is a lot simpler than you think. It's just a willingness to say, man, I have sinned. Lord, I have fallen short. God, I want to trust you with my life. Would you use me? Would you lead me? I believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again, and that is the only thing that can make me right before you, God. And so from this day forward, I trust you. And here's the thing, you're not going to do it right all the time. In fact, you're going to do it wrong a lot. But if you're willing to make this proclamation, this declaration, you'd be shocked by what God can do in and through you for the glory of his name. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it's true. And I thank you that even a hard text points to the goodness of your gospel. So, Lord, I pray that as we worship you in song, that you would get the praise that you are due from the hearts of people that are here prepared to praise you. And I pray where there is conviction that there would be action. And I pray that you would use that action to bring glory to yourself and draw men and women to you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name.